Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Imagine for one second that you get a life sentence for a double murder that you didn't commit. Sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? Well, that is what happened to my guest today, Mr. Ricky Kidd. He served 23 years in prison before being exonerated. 23 years of his life gone. It is honestly hard to imagine. Ricky was arrested in 1996 for the shooting deaths of George Bryant and Oscar Bridges in Kansas City, Missouri. He was arrested and convicted despite the fact he had an alibi at the time of the crime, but his public defender never presented his alibi at trial. No physical evidence linked him to the crime. I'm sure there are many of you that, like me, would like to think that our criminal justice system bats a thousand. The unfortunate reality is it doesn't. It is estimated that close to 5% of convicted individuals in the U.S. prison system are actually innocent. 69% of wrongful conviction cases include eyewitness misidentification. So today, I have Mr. Ricky Kidd on the show to tell a story. Welcome to the show, Ricky. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Amy. So I want to start from the beginning. February 1996, a double homicide happens in Kansas City. You end up being convicted and you serve 23 years in prison. So take me all the way back to 1996. Yeah, it's uh, 26 years ago, but uh, it's 1996. It's February 1996 and a, a double homicide had taken place in the south side of Kansas City. Two men were left shot and killed, and a little girl was left, a five-year-old was left in the home uninjured. She was the one that called 911. Her daddy was one of the victims. And so automatically, the city found that very displeasing. Violence is always displeasing, but it was exceptionally displeasing that these type of individuals would do such a thing. And so there was a eager desire to catch who was responsible for this crime. My name had came up in the course of the investigation for which we later learned that it was really the real killers who had dropped my name to throw or send the police rather down a rabbit's hole. And a rabbit's hole they went. They went down that rabbit's hole. I was picked up initially. And I thought that they realized, the police, that they were making a mistake. At least that's what they led me to believe. It was February 14th, eight days later, they released me. And they released me saying, Ricky, it looks like somebody threw your name in a hat but you're clear and you're good to go. And so I went home and I went about my business. It was some 90 days later, May 22nd, 1996, just a few short days from where we are. They came back and they charged me with two counts of first degree murder and two counts of armed criminal action. They gave me no bail. They appointed me a public defender. I screamed, I yelled, I'm innocent. They did not want to hear it. And 11 months later, I proceeded to trial with the public defender. I did not have adequate funding to afford a paid attorney at the time. And I did not know that at that time, the state of Missouri's public defender system was ranked 49th as one of the worst public defender systems in the country. I had no shot. I had no real opportunity to ever prove my innocence with that type of counsel. And 11 months later, proved that case. The jury found me guilty, and I was sentenced to four lives without the possibility of parole at the age of 21 in a maximum level five prison. Yeah, I was going to ask how old you were. In the first initial interview that you had with police, did you have an attorney present then? No attorney present. Did not think that I would even need attorney present. I thought the worst would be that I would be inconvenienced. I thought that for, because everybody has their day planned out. And so when police pull up and ruin, you're just going to ruin my day, I thought. Not ruin the rest of my life or the next 23 years of my life. And so I had no clue. At the time, just like everyday Americans who's probably listening, we don't realize that wrongful convictions is considered a silent crisis in America. I did not know that. 
Again, just as many people today did not know that, and I fell right into the clutches of those detectives and prosecutors who knowingly sent the wrong person to prison. And you were only 21 years old. I was 21 at the time of charge, 22. at the t- As I was going into the prison system, I was turning 22. And did you know the two guys that committed the crime? I did, and that is the... When I speak to youth, I tell them I'm innocent of my crime. I'm guilty of poor lifestyle choices. And that's kind of what happened. I did know the victims, and I did know the perpetrators years ago. I grew up around those individuals, but I had not engaged with those individuals during the present time or the commission of the crime. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. Police ran a computer search and they saw that we were known associates in the past. They start trying to do the math and put the case together. And Amy, they got it wrong. They got it woefully wrong. Let's talk about that lifestyle for youth listening, our parents wanting to talk to their youth about that. And I did a podcast on this recently, and I don't know if you agree or disagree, but it was on rap music and masculinity in the Mm -hmm. culture today. Sure. And a lot of the lyrics, I feel like in this rap and drill music kind of glorify a lifestyle that could you end you up in trouble or around people that could get you in trouble. Agreed. And so speak to your youth and and how you grew up and and what you would what your opinion is on rap music. Sure. Well, first of all, I agree. I really do think that we need to be careful about the information that we take in, whether that's video games, whether that's cinema, even some cinema, which a lot of us see as benign, but I think it has the potential to influence as well as rap music. And so when you wake up every day, all day, and you're listening to that, it influences your your, your thoughts subliminally, below the threshold of conscience. And a lot of youth They're not aware of that. They're just aware of their conscious. And so they'll defend their position from a conscious point of view. But subliminally, they are taking in that information. And it could be a danger. It can can be a setup for what may later come down the line that you did not see coming. In my case, I grew up without a father. My mother at the age of 12 fell into an addiction. My sister went to stay with her father. We had separate fathers. And I felt like I was left and an abandoned the house that we used to stay in became an abandoned home. And I began hanging out with friends in the neighborhood. I became involved in, uh, to survive and eat. We would go to the local convenience store. I would steal Snicker bars and bags of Doritos chips. But when all my friends went home at night, I would go back to that abandoned house. Nobody knew that my mother had ran off and that my father, of course, had never really showed up. And so eventually the lights would get cut off. The water would get cut off. Winter had set in. There was no heat. And eventually a friend of mine who caught on that my mother wasn't around, he said, man, let me ask my parents if you can come and stay. And they gave me shelter to come stay. But I speak to the youth and I speak to the parents and those who are interested in that issue, I associated with individuals that was scrupulous, that did not have no scruples or however you would say that, that did not have no moral standing or moral fiber and that was willing to commit a heinous crime. And by me hanging with them in the past, when they went to commit or participated in the commission of the crime, my name, it came up. And when my name, it came up, it was good enough for the police to throw me in that lineup and to group me with those individuals. And it was hard. It was hard. We was able to do it. It took 23 years later. And I tell young youth, be careful, because something you do two years ago, because it was two years that passed between I, before my two years had passed without me interacting with these individuals. So something you can do two years ago can come back and haunt you and cost you 23 years to get out of. And that's what it did for me in my life. How old were you whenever your mom left? And did you ever have a dad in your life? My dad never showed up. I may have seen him three times. It's very, very foggy. Those memories, he just I don't know to this day why. I really was a good kid. I was a bright kid. I read two grades above and reading two grades above in math. I was into plays, school plays. I was really a good kid. I don't know. I don't know why that individual or that guy didn't want to be a part of my life. And then my mother, by the age of 12, right, about 11 and a half, short of turning 12, she fell. She went to a party. 
And there was a smorgasbord of drugs there. And she tried crack cocaine, which just really hit in the 80s. And she liked it. She liked it. And she, uh, like many other Americans during that era, became addicted. So she forgot her responsibilities fast. I mean, she was really on her game before then. We was somewhat middle class. And she worked at an insurance company. She made good money. She, My mother really was on point if... You know, to be a single mother, she was on point. Is she still alive today? She's still alive today. She is? Yeah. That drug knocked her off her feet, and uh, it really unraveled uh, the family Do you have structure. a relationship with her today? I do. I do. That's good. I do. I do. Yeah. Okay, so you get sentenced to 23 years mm-hmm. in court when you heard the guilty verdict. What was that feeling for you? I was shocked. I really thought that the system worked. I thought that my lawyers would prove, be able to prove that I was innocent. I thought there would be a not guilty verdict. But when that jury stood up and they read guilty, it was like watching a movie where they said, life guilty, life without parole. Everything was in slow motion. Tears began to roll down my face. I could barely see in the courtroom just figures because that's how loaded my eyes were with tears. And I was devastated. So at any point during the trial, did you think it was headed to a guilty verdict? I did not. You were like, oh, there's no chance. No chance. I didn't think innocent people go to prison. I kept thinking that when police first picked me up, that my day would be inconvenienced. And then as I sat waiting for trial, I'm thinking my, this year is a big inconvenience. 11 months it took to take me to trial. I never imagined actually being convicted and spending the rest of my life in prison for a crime that I, not that I didn't do, but I wouldn't do. And it was devastating to me, Amy. I want to talk about the little girl that was there as a witness. Because she did not identify you in the lineup or the video lineup, or even from what I read, when they put her on the stand? They did put her on the stand, yes. So was she six then, or how? She was four at the time, five at, four at the time of the crime, five during the trial process. And one, I can't even imagine a a four-year-old witnessing this and being questioned and then being on trial a few years later and having to get up there. But she didn't identify you. So how did they get to the point? Do you think that they were kind of, from what I read, like trying to coerce her down a path in the courtroom of saying that she recognized you? Yeah, that's a good question. And if I could frame it with some of the things that caused my wrongful convictions, because people often ask, man, what would make the jury believe that you were guilty? One of the first things is that the prosecutor attorney Amy McGowan had sat down with the real killers in her office with detectives, and she was deposing them. And in the process of their deposition, they began to confess, essentially. And instead of running over to the courthouse, freeing me, charging them, she decides to bury the entire interactions, the transcript records, as if it never happened. And me and my lawyers never had a chance to know that the real killers had essentially already confessed. One of the other things that police did is what they call a suggestive identification. That is when they get a witness who may look like they want to cooperate and witnesses want to cooperate at times for certain reasons. Sometimes they want something out of it for themselves. Sometimes they just want to be the Good Samaritan who's doing the right thing. And so police understand that. And when they get them down to the police station, again, it's called a suggestive identification where they suggest, they subliminally suggest who they may want the witness to pick out. In my case, the state witness, no physical evidence in my case, the adult state witness, they showed him a single photo and said, is this the guy? And he said, no, I can't say that is a breach right there. Then they showed them a five-man photo spread, and they said, "Is do you see anybody in this five-man photo spread? All the faces had changed, Amy, except for my face in slot five. So he says, I think right there, even the five-year-old would win at that game. 
I think that's him. And then they said, well, since you can't be sure, let us take you in the video room. We're going to show you a video lineup. It was four people in that video lineup, including myself. And guess who he saw again? Ricky Kidd. And so he picked me and said, that's the guy that I saw. He went from being 0% sure to now 2001% sure. People, American people don't know, but that is called a suggestive identification. Now, more straight to your question about the little girl, what they then did in trial, when the little girl, they put her on the stand and they said, do you remember us showing you a five-man photo spread? They say, yes. They showed it to her. They said, can you pick out the guy who you saw? She picked out number three. That was the gentleman who was actually responsible, Marcus Merrill. They said, can you pick out the other guy now? And she said, no. I said, I only saw one. So they said, Your Honor, can we can we approach? And she's hungry. She's confused. She's she wasn't able to perform the way police said she did. And when she was not able to perform or identify me in court, the police officers then were allowed to take the stand and tell the jury and the people of the court. Well, she told us she picked them out. And that is not a standard as well. It was argued that law or that piece of ordinance that doesn't allow them to do that because it's hearsay and I don't get to confront my accuser. But they say, well, this is a rare circumstance. She's a little girl. I'm going to allow the police to basically credify the little girl. She was not able to identify Ricky Kidd in trial, but officer get up there and tell the jury that she did and we'll go with that. And that's what they did. And that's how they was able to secure a conviction. But you had throughout the day of the murder had witnesses that placed you somewhere else. Yes. Agreed. Right? Agreed. So where were you at that day? Yeah. Yeah. Where was I at all day? You know, <laughs> <laughs> listen, most people will say this is where I was at the time of the crime. I was so innocent that I said, listen, don't ask. Don't just ask me where I was at the time of the crime. I'll tell you where I was all day long. And so I brought in all witnesses from the moment that I woke up, started my car, let my sister. I had a older car and a newer model car and my older model car would not start. It was frosty that morning. And my sister was already slated to take my newer model car. She, in fact, she did. She woke up early that morning. She took that car. She worked in downtown Kansas City. When my older model car did not start right, I had to get my stepdad to give me a jump. He gave me a jump. I went down to renege on my sister, tell her, listen, I'm going to pick this car up. Just call me when you get off work because I had errands to run. And so that whole day, I ran various errands to include the Jackson County Sheriff's Police Department. People are shocked, Amy. When they hear my case, but people are even more shocked when they hear my alibi that I was at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department at the time of the commission of the crime. Now, what happened was the prosecutor summoned a sergeant from that office who did not process. I was, what were you doing there? I was applying for a legal gun permit. That's what I was doing on February 6, 1996. And the prosecutor got slick and called a sergeant who do not process those applications. That is even not his area that he works in. I didn't know that. My public defender did not know that, but she knew that. And so he, this Sergeant Buffalo was able to get on the stand and say, maybe he faxed it in. Not true, because there would be a fax at the top. They said, well, maybe he mailed it in. Not true, because there's a process to that. And then they said, well, maybe he uh, had somebody else to bring it in. And they said, not true, because you have to show your ID as a part of the process. Later, years later, we found a lady who actually processed my gun permit, Susan Jordan, Sergeant Susan Jordan, who came to court and testified and reverse engineered the whole process and said, no, it couldn't have been the day before. It couldn't have been the day after. It would have been on this day. And she showed the courts why Ricky Kidd would have been at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department on the day that he said and at the time that he said. I mean, you would think if you were at the courthouse, it wouldn't be that difficult to prove your alibi. Aren't there cameras or something? Good grief. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And so let's just briefly discuss. I thought that they would go grab this footage 
but they did not. They did not grab the footage, Amy. And 26 years ago, everything didn't fit on a thumb drive. Yeah. And so they still had VHS tapes and recordings. I told these people, I told my lawyer, I told the police where I was. By the time they get around to it months later, they say, oh, nothing particular stood out during those times that you're asking for. So we recorded over the tape. And so we lost the evidence, the VHS tape, the video evidence forever. Had they just done their job, if they was just as excited about chasing that one aspect down as they were about putting those cold handcuffs on me, they would have seen by clear and convincing evidence, I was exactly where I told them I were, but they did not. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So first day in prison. One day turns into one year, turns into 10 years, turns into 20 years. I want to talk about day-to-day life in the prison, wherever you want to start. I know you got involved in some programs there and rehabilitation, but but let's just good, bad, and ugly, a day in the life. Yeah, a day in the life inside of a maximum level five prison for a crime that you absolutely did not commit. I remember getting off the bus, handcuffed and shackled, with about 25 other individuals. And the lady who greeted us, the officer, she greeted us with a salutation of welcome to hell. Men, welcome to hell. It was a place where they housed death row inmate. It was a place where they had different layers of fencing, including an electric fence. They call it the death fence. Nobody escapes the death fence. And so I'm inside this maximum level five prison. Although I was still in the state of Missouri, I might as well have been in a third world country or a whole nother world because it was all foreign to me. I never had a brother, a cousin, nobody in prison. I'd never been to prison. And then I'm still trying to grapple with the fact that I'm innocent and I should not be here in the first place. So it was daunting. It was daunting walking across the yard, watching these men play various basketball games, handball games. But even worse for me was the whistles that came similar to what we see sometimes in TV, the whistles that will come across the fence as some of us walk down that walk and probably was seen as prey to some of those individuals. I was fortunate not to ever have that come upon me the whole 23 years. A couple good men who probably made some bad choices befriended me early on and kind of gave me the lay of the land. Here's how you stay out of trouble. Don't gamble. Don't associate with gang members. Never carry, if somebody gives you an envelope and says, take this envelope to Amy, never do it because that's the number one game that they play. And then it's a setup. There was never nothing in the envelope. They're going to say that X amount was in the envelope and now you owe me $400. You had to take it. Amy says she never, she received the envelope open and empty. It's a game. Maybe they split the money. But to stay away, to stay away from all these things, I did that. I did that. In fact, it was easy for me to do that because I found my way to the law library quickly. I did not know law at that time. I do now. But I had to figure out quickly, how do I prove that I don't supposed to be here? And so why many men, they would call recreation or yard where guys get to or recess. I call it recess. And guys, grown men, like little kids in an elementary school, would run to the yard like recess. But it was a serious matter. They would not run to the program department. They would not run to the law library. But I did. I had a natural draw into those areas because I had to figure out how to prove my innocence. And uh Those first few years, that's where you would find Ricky Kidd in the law library. And those following years, you would find me typing up letters to churches, lawyers, media, anybody with an ear to listen and an eye to read. I would send out Mayday, help, help, please, please help, help. And for the first 10 years, it fell on deaf ears. Nobody would help. Nobody would help. In the ninth hour, I like to say, the Midwest Innocence Project out of Kansas City, Missouri, reached out. They are an innocence project that help innocent people prove their innocence and and bring them home. They reached out and said, we're going to take a look at your case. It was 2005. By 2000, it still wasn't overnight. I thought at first, ooh, we, I'm going home. But no, it took an additional four years before we finally got into court and was able to successfully prove my innocence. That's 2009. Now, if the listeners are listening, you would think that I would go home in 2009 We successfully proved my innocence in 2009, 
but the attorney general's office uh, haggled us over technicalities of law that we should have went through the back door and not the front door, that we should have filed this and not that. And you should have just technicalities, host of technicalities, instead of just looking at the facts for what they were. We had to fight 10 additional years until 2019. I was finally able to make my way home. You know, a lot of people ask this question. How did you survive? How did you survive such a 23-year nightmare? I would not be able to do such a thing. And that's why I like sharing my story. And that's why I'm glad I'm able to share this story with your listening audience as well, because my difficulty or challenge was a 23-year wrongful convictions, but other people are going through things as well. And so I, again, I get to share how I survived. And one was my faith. I was always a strong believer. I grew up as a strong believer, and I had to lean on that more so than in the past. The second was my writing. My writing was my, it was my safe place. I could take those bottled up emotions and expressions and I could put them on paper and I could feel better about what was going on. It didn't take it away. It didn't instantly open up the prison gates and let me go, but I had to find a place to put those emotions. For me, it was writing. For others who may be listening, it could be kickboxing. It could be exercising. It could be weightlifting. It could be songwriting. It could be, though we have to find ways to let out what it is that we're processing and experiencing. I guess that's why Taylor Swift has come up with so many good hits. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask Taylor Swift. I'm being funny and she's a great artist, but I'm also being serious. We, we can channel those emotions in a positive way that's productive and not destructive and actually help us get through. And that's a part of what I did. The other part of what I did is I lived outside of myself, Amy. I had life without the possibility of parole, but 85% of the prison population is going home. They have parolable sentences. And so I decided to live vicariously through others. For other men that were going home, I would take programs, teach programs, create programs for the prison, and then help those individuals successfully reintegrate back into society. Sometimes I would get a good word from a bird, metaphorically, that they're doing good and, and back connected with their family. And I would find peace and solace in that. I had life without. I was not going home, but others were. And so I learned how to live through them until I ever had my chance, if I ever had my chance. I have so many questions <laughs> based on sure. that little chat there. So, I mean, you're in a maximum level prison. Were you ever scared? I mean, you're there, innocent, no prior criminal activity history. And now all of a sudden you're in prison with murderers. I don't even know. That's the worst I can think of. Were you ever like sleeping with one eye open? Yeah. And you know what? I hardly get asked that question. But yeah. But you better not let them know it. That's what I was curious. If you're, if you're in there saying, I'm innocent, I didn't do it. Are they like looking at you like, ooh, he's weak. There's a... He didn't actually kill somebody. So there's our opportunity because yeah, yeah. he's not going to fight back yeah. or whatever it might be. Yeah, I was under so much stress. I lost tons of weight. I mean, tons. I got down to like 148 pounds. I'm sitting in front of you now at 255. I need to lose a few of those pounds. <laughs> <laughs> but I got down to 148. I'm narrow. It doesn't, my frame, it, they, they, yeah, I was good prey to them. And then I wasn't bad looking. This young guy, I'm still not bad looking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, God. But this nice looking young man looks frail. He's saying he's innocent. So he don't have a reputation or a character of being violent. So he's an easy prey. And I had to overcome that. I had to push every face muscle. I'm just being honest with you. I'm having an honest moment. Can we all have yeah. an honest moment right now, everybody? <laughs> have anybody ever had to put on that strong face, like, leave me alone. Don't you dare think about it. And I had to walk around like that. Leave me alone. Don't you dare think about it. And it worked for the most part. It worked. Now, what also helped secure that or beef that up was I was a good guy. I was genuine. I was fortunate enough to have some good guys who made poor choices to corral around me and they would nah, leave kid alone. Just leave. So that's my first, second, third, fourth year. By the time I got into my fifth year, I began to establish my own reputation, likability and credibility through programs. I was the program guy and I was the 
in my poetry book that I wrote, it's on Amazon now, Vivid Expressions, A Journey Inside the Mind of the Innocence, I write, I was forced to become the light, illuminating everything in sight. I was forced to become the oxygen if ever I was to breathe again, floundering on my pathway. I was almost halfway only to realize I was going the wrong way. But the first part of that piece, I was forced to become the light, illuminating everything in sight. Prison is such a dark place. You can really get sucked in and you can really lose your way, no matter how strong you are, no matter how wise you are, no matter how brave you think you are. It is a dark hole. It can be like an abyss. And so there's no real light. There's no real inspiration. Everybody's gangbanging. They're committing sexual assaults on each other. They're doing drugs. They're scheming officers, female officers, nursing staff. It's one big manipulation dark pot. And I didn't want to be no or have no part of that. So I was forced to become the light for myself. And what I discovered is that I end up becoming the light for others. And so I end up building a reputation for being the light. When guys were done with their criminal thinking or their stinking thinking, they would come to me to sign up for programs, sometimes take the programs that I was facilitating. When they was trying to work on their case and didn't know where to go, I would tell them to meet me at the library and I'll show them how to file a motion or how to dig into their case and or how to reach out and start a campaign so that they can get some type of attention. I became that individual in that dark hole. Were there any other men in there that you believe are innocent that you became close with? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Amy, that's a good question. And I would love for your audience to know that I am not an anomaly, at least from the aspect of the wrongful conviction itself. It may be rare how I was able to overcome and step into my resilience. I do believe that part. But yes, there are other innocent people across the country. It's believed that out of the 2.3 million people inside our prison system across the country, that 5% of those is a result of a wrongful conviction. That's about 115,000 people. Over the last 31 years, since 1989, the National Registry for Exonerations has recorded about 3,000 of those exonerations, those men who have come home, still leaving that over 100,000 individuals languishing in prison. You are most definitely, I'm answering your question, you are most definitely going to run into individuals who are claiming to be innocent, some who are not uh, being uh, truthful, but some who are. For example, Kevin Strickland. Kevin Strickland has uh, enjoyed national media attention. He just come home last November. He's been on every show, every major media outlet. Lamar Johnson out of St. Louis, Missouri, also have enjoyed national media attention. He's been on every national outlet, even outside of the country. These are individuals who I was friends with while I was on the inside. Larry Callahan, who's out of St. Louis, Missouri, now lives in uh, St. Louis, also friends of mine or acquaintance of mine. So yes, there are individuals individuals who you get to know and learn and discover, wow, you really are innocent as well. Wow. And you mentioned the sexual abuse and the sexual encounters in prison, and I'm kind of intrigued by that. Are these men straight prior to going in or were they attracted to the same sex prior or does something change in prison where that sexuality comes out? Talk to me about that. Sure. What I was able to see was probably a split of some sort. Some of these individuals probably were that way prior to entering prison. I certainly saw those individuals who were outspoken about their homosexuality. And then you had category where those individuals looks like it appears that they were sexually um, deprived and was seeking any sexual gratification, even if it was in the form of another male. And then I think there's one last category to where it was about power, and they were sexual predators, period. Whether that's male, whether that's female, they got a kick and a rise out of sexually assaulting individuals. So those are the three categories that I would say I saw. I was nowhere near close to those individuals. I had a bias a strong bias towards individuals like that. I thought they was bad luck. I would call them jinky. I would not. I'm really friendly, but I thought they were so jinky and and bad luck. I would severely 
or significantly diminish my association with individuals like that. But you can't help learn. So I'm in a position to answer the question because 23 years inside that environment, you watch, you listen, you learn. Uh, Amy, I've heard men screaming. Uh, I've watched other men go into sales just two doors down from me, shut the door while two guys stand outside the door and the other two men is in there uh, sexually assaulting. You hear the screams, you hear the yells, you hear the help and you bet not go help. You better not get involved and you better not go tell the police because the police is off in their own little pod area. They can't see everything 24-7. And if they're not in that unit and if somebody is not getting the police attention, the officer's attention, then these type of crimes can happen inside prison undetected. And again, you want to. You want to go up there and say, hey, stop, cut it out. But dare, if you will, because then you will become a part of that victim cycle as well and it's not a good look. I've seen that. And it usually turns out pretty bad for the individual who thinks to be brave enough to get in somebody else's affairs. Wow. That's really disturbing. Yeah. And I met you because you're a patient at Victory Men's Health. Yeah. And I want to talk about the little bit breaking down the stigma around erectile dysfunction and what you experienced in prison without having any female interaction for 23 years. And- Probably at the prime of your testosterone and the the prime of your life. You missed out on a lot of action. I did. (laughs) I did. I missed out on all actions. If your audience is listening to anything, if they was listening to the beginning, I got locked up when I was 21. So I tell people I lost all my 20s, all my 30s, and half of my 40s, my best years. And if we're really being honest, when I came home, I called my lawyer. When I came home and discovered that my man piece was not behaving like I thought he would, I called my lawyer, one of my male lawyers who uh, uh, ushered me home and and fought to bring me home, and uh, I I cried. Everything else that they took from me, and I said, man, this is, it was a big deal. I thought I'd be able to use it. I thought I'd be able to put them back in. Put them back back in in the game. Yeah, put them back in the game. (laughs) Put them back in the game. He had time to make up. Yeah. And that wasn't the case. I think in part of it was, so that kind of bothers me. When I think about it at times, that still kind of bothers me because I sat there not using it. Uh, I didn't get to use it for 23 years. And during some of my research, I learned why that became the case. Not just that I was getting older. The male's anatomy is an interesting thing to understand as an individual age and how the blood flows and how the vessels began to deteriorate to no fault of the male. And then to not be in play for 23 years as well, he's getting no activity. Maybe there's some signaling that there's no need for me to respond because I'm not being used. And when I came home, I had some challenges to overcome in that area. But yeah, you all... I came to you all and you was able to help. Put, uh, put you back in the game. Put me back in the game. And <laughs> my wife is sitting here to my left and uh, we're back in the game. <laughs> yeah. And you've since had a baby, right? We did have a baby. <laughs> I have a 17 month old as the proof that I'm back in the game. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So did you ever switch when when you found out that they had proven you to be innocent and you were going to be released, but you still sat there another 10 years, yeah, basically, yeah. did you did they bring you to a lower security prison or did Mm-mm. you stay? I stayed there the whole time in a maximum level five prison, even through the process that last 10 years where we were still fighting unnecessarily. The media was, I began to enjoy national attention. Reason Magazine began to cover me. PBS NewsHour began to cover me. A lot of local press. They would really press the AG's office. Why are you clearly keeping this innocent man in prison? And they just would have a, a what I call a, a doo-doo grin on their face and they couldn't answer it. But they left me there essentially unprotected because I was still in a violent environment and knowing that I was innocent. So I really had to play very intelligent moves. I really had to be super intelligent about the type of decisions. I already had been doing that, but you really got to be super smart in how you handle your day-to-day to make sure that you don't invite any unwanted trouble, whether from the inmates or staff, to make sure that I made it home and that I made it home safely. Because I'm sure word had spread at that point what was going on with your case, right? Or were other inmates aware? Yeah, very much aware. And I had developed 
a rep a, a very good reputation. I mean, with the wardens, with the caseworkers, I became a very, very likable guy, maybe 80, 85 percent. But there's always going to be the percentage where people right. do not like you. You Jealous. When they look at you, you remind me who I'm not. Right. You remind me who I'm trying to be and didn't quite get to be. So I don't like you. So I did have some of that. In fact, so much so that an individual had called the courthouse, had wrote the courthouse during one of my last appeals and told the judge that Ricky Kidd and his legal team is scamming you. And and the witnesses who are testifying are prostitutes and uh, 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 street walkers. And I'm talking about uh, totally false. But the courts had to pause my appeal for about three months and take a look at all of that. They had to go get my phone calls from where the individual said, I, I heard him talking about it over the phone. They had to go get all those records. The court ended up dismissing it as fraudulent upon the court. But to your point, yeah, people became uh, jealous and envy. And sometimes they don't want to see you go home because they're not going home. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. How did you keep faith in a system that failed you so bad? The same system that failed you, you needed them to get you out? For me and for others who might be listening, it's important not to accept defeat. Because Amy, if you accept defeat, then there's no reason to go back out and fight. And I I needed to have a reason to continue to go out and fight. People used to tell me, and it's, it's factual, that less than 1% is ever successful on appeal. Ricky, I lost 11 times, Amy before I won my very last appeal, 11 times, they would laugh at me and they would say, when are you going to give up? But I would not accept defeat. I knew that if it was a 1% a chance was better than a 0% chance. I wasn't so interested in how 99% fail. I was more interested in how does the 1% succeed? And if I locked in on how the 1% succeed, I perhaps can be counted among the 1%. And so that's exactly what I did. And that is exactly what I encourage others, those who are listening now. Again, I know, I know you're going through a difficulty or a challenge. At some point, you will, if not now. And just to remind you to never accept defeat uh, because there will be no reason for getting back up and going out in the middle of the ring and continuing the fight. So that's the mentality that I uh, took took up, and uh, uh, that's what I held on to. And I believe, absolutely believe, that mentality is what helped push me out the door. Yeah, and I wanted you on the podcast because the title of the podcast is Women Want Strong Men. Yeah. I think your mindset defines that. And I like to compare it to the Nelson Mandela when he came out of prison stronger than what he went in yeah. versus you look at somebody like Saddam Hussein who wilted away to this little weak old man That's when good. all his power was gone. And you're a good example of that. Like you were a fighter and you came out stronger than how you went in. I did. And you know what? My wife and I just had dinner with some really good friends last week. And we were sitting on the outside balcony, our patio area. And she said, Ricky, you're like my Nelson Mandela. You're like, you're like my Nelson Mandela. And I see where you're going with your story and your message. And I hope the rest of the world get a chance to see and experience what I get to experience. It brought tears to my eyes. I was very humbled. We all know Nelson Mandela and we all know the story of how he went in and how he came out. And I do believe that I am much stronger. I am much stronger than I ever have been in my life. And the proof of that strength shows up when I go back inside courthouses when I go back inside prisons to visit those individuals, I'm going into Jefferson City Correctional Center on Thursday to visit the innocent individual I just mentioned, Lamar Johnson. It takes uh, strength. It takes might. It takes courage to go back into the very same prison that once held you captive. I went inside to visit Kevin Strickland, the very same prison him and I walked in together. And then on the day of Kevin Strickland's release, I went in with the legal team and I signed his release papers. But it takes strength. It takes might. It takes a strong man to be able to do that and to continue to do the work. The work that I'm doing now out here, I sit on the very DA's office. Are you listening? Hello? 
<laughs> to your audience that you listen because the very DA's office responsible for my wrongful conviction, I now serve on their advisory board, their community advisory board. It takes strength and might to be able to go back into the same office that was responsible for your wrongful conviction that says, I want to sit at the table now to make sure that this doesn't happen again. I now sit and enjoy the pleasure of sitting on as an executive board member of the National Innocence Network. We oversee the 70 independent innocent projects across the country, and I get to help shape what our policy looks like, what those conversations look like, what our campaigns across the country look like. Other people might have went what you just said about Saddam Hussein or maybe found them a lazy boy chair or a bridge, metaphorically speaking, and went crawled up under there. Some have because everybody's injury is different. But somehow I was able to rise, rise above the ashes and become the strong man that many people see me now. And they draw off that strength. They draw off that inspiration. The light that I was in there has become transferable. And now I shed that light or share that light out here in the world as well. So so I don't know how I would feel if I was in your situation and you said you have a strong faith in God. Do you have resentment or are you almost grateful at this point for your experience? No resentment. No resentment. I was and I am angry. I was and I am angry. But what I learned how to do, Amy, and what I would hope to share with your listening audience is that we can channel our anger we could change, it could either be destructive or it can be productive. And I decided that I want my anger to be productive. And so when you hear me get animated, when you see me on stage speaking to a crowd of 900 or speaking to a crowd of 50, that passion that people have come to enjoy and be moved by, that's anger. That's anger, but it's running in a way where it's, again, it's becoming productive instead of destructive. I just decided that was a better option for me, that I wanted to be better, that I didn't want to be bitter, and that I've already had been through the worst of it. So why continue to put myself in a mindset or a place that I've already have victory over? And I just want to remind those who are listening that sometimes we can overcome our difficulties and our challenges, and we will already have victory over it. But we, if we're not careful, we'll allow our mind to take us back to that trauma or to that challenge and difficulty for which we've already overcome and we have to guard that. And so that's what I do every day with my beautiful wife, my amazing 17 month old, and the fact that I'm walking in purpose, on purpose. I'm using my life to make a difference in others. And I get to ignite people around the world to be more than they ever thought they could be and to realize their own resilience. That's what I decided to do. And that's how I walk in my strength every day. And speaking of resilience, your motto is resilience mode. What does that mean to you today? Yeah, it's a uh, resilience mode could be in fight. It's also synonymous with fight mode. It's a stance. I'm in resilience mode, meaning I am ready. I'm ready to take on and tackle tomorrow's challenges and that I have the tools and ability to take on and tackle tomorrow's challenges. I believe we all do. That's one way I've been able to connect with the audience everywhere I go. I'm not just telling my story. I'm telling our story that we all have the ability to be resilient, to step up and step in to a new self, a new person, to spring back, what resilience means, to spring back from different difficulties or challenges. That's what it means to me uh, to be able to be resilient. But I also want to note that resilience is not like climbing a mountain. It is not a one-time thing. It is not overcoming one particular difficulty or challenge because life, if you live long enough, will have many difficulties or challenges. It is having the ability to do it every day over and over again. Yes, I'm removed from my 23-year nightmare of being wrongfully convicted, but new challenges still lie ahead and I still have to summon that same spirit of resilience and I caution everybody and advise everybody and encourage everybody, for those who are listening, that you have the ability to tap into your resilience each and every day and not just hear it from Ricky Kidd. So tell people about your website and your books and where they can find you if they want to get in touch with you. Yeah, sure deal. So 
I came home six weeks after being home. I started I Am Resilience. It's my own little company. It's a resilience training, motivational speaking, criminal justice reform platform. I do some resilience training. I do consulting work. I speak. I've done recently, and we just come back from Nashville. I've done my 90th speaking engagement over the last two and a half years. And then, of course, I testify before lawmakers twice since I've been home just recently, about a month and a half ago. And so that is the work I do. To find out more about the work I do, people can go to resiliencemode.com. That's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-C-E-M-O-D-E.com. They also can uh, keep up with us on our link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash I-A-R. We keep a lot of information there so people could stay engaged and involved. One of the, the book can be found on Amazon.com, Vivid Expressions, A Journey Inside the Mind of the Innocents. And we have an exciting new campaign, Injustice in America, where we are taking prosecutors to the task, so to speak, are really helping them, if you will, with the new training program called the cost of a prosecutor's decision. We're going to hit 10 states or cities that have troubled areas or are known for high rates of wrongful convictions over the next year. And we're going to offer that training to those DA offices. Many people often ask Ricky, everyday people, how can I help? I'm not involved in that area ordinarily. I don't ordinarily pay attention to these things. But since you've been on our radar, how can I help? And one of the ways that I believe people can help is they can help support the Injustice in America initiative. It's through GoFundMe. We're going to fund 10 cities and we're going to train 10 prosecutors offices so that wrongful convictions in the future can be diminished or curbed altogether. So those are ways that people can uh, help and get involved and learn more about this great work that we're doing. Honestly, everything you're working on is so inspiring and inspirational, and you've just come so far, and your mindset is so positive. It's it's really amazing. And I'm just going to wrap up here with a few other points, just so everybody is aware that Ricky has not received compensation from the state for the years he spent in prison because compensation in Missouri is only given to people cleared through DNA evidence, and he cannot sue McGowan because prosecutors are immune from lawsuits. McGowan, however, has been accused of misconduct in several other cases, and five of the convictions she helped secure have been overturned. She has since stepped down and retired. The Innocent Project that represented Ricky represents innocent clients for an average of seven years before they're freed. I'm going to link all the things that Ricky just mentioned and all the projects he's working on so people can take a look at that. Ricky, thank you so much for being here. Dawn, your beautiful wife, thank you so much for joining him. It was a pleasure having both of you in studio today. And I thank you for sharing your story with others. Your story is both inspiring and insightful. Your mindset and what you have overcome is second to none. Thank you very much, Ricky, for being here. 